Saints and Rascals by Clark Carr Part 1 Thomas de Quincey Happiness might now be bought for a penny and carried in the waistcoat pocket. Portable ecstasies might be corked up in a pint bottle and peace of mind could be sent down by the mail. I wrote that. It was my first popular book, surprisingly popular, in fact, printed in serial form in periodicals like Charles Dickens' works. It was titled Confessions of an Opium Eater, written and published in 1822. Myself, I am Thomas de Quincey, Esquire, born in 1785 in Manchester, England, on the eve of the French Revolution. I grew up during the Napoleonic Wars and died in Edinburgh, Scotland, in 1859. Died. Well, not everyone gets to announce the year of his death. 1859. It was the year Charles Darwin published his On the Origin of the Species. But I wrote Confessions of an Opium Eater a work dedicated perhaps more to the degradation and diminution of the species. Oh, I didn't actually eat opium. I drank laudanum. I may just have a little pick-me-up right now, if you don't mind. Laudanum. A wonderful and for a time cure-all medicine. It was invented, if you can believe it, by the medieval mystic, Dr. Paracelsus, who called it the Stone of Immortality. By stone, he meant substance. His laudanum was improved and popularized by our English Hippocrates, Dr. Thomas Sedenham, who came up with this marvelous formula. Two ounces opium, one ounce saffron, one dram of cinnamon and cloves, all this dissolved in canary wine. Without opium, Dr. Sedenham said, the healing art would cease to exist. So much for medical science in my time, what? I am sure it is different in your time. I am sure you have advanced in the intervening two centuries, beyond being dependent on opium or its derivatives for handling pain. Surely medicine and civilization have advanced beyond that. For me and my time, a drop or two here, there, of laudanum did cure everything, or at least it made you think so. A few drops for this affliction, a few for that. At my worst, I have consumed hmm, eight to twelve a day. Oh, not drops, eight to twelve thousand drops per day. Let's see, that would come to... Let me have another little sip while I figure this out. 12,000 drops is about one and a half pints. That's what I think I sometimes drink of laudanum daily. Do not judge me harshly. I was not alone. A bit of a forerunner, perhaps. As I am dead, allow me the privilege to wander forward into your future. By 1900, at least 10% of Americans will become addicted to opium or morphine. Morphine, after all, will be 10 times less expensive than alcohol at that time. 
Your Sears Roebuck catalog advertises two ounces of laudanum for 18 cents, one and a half pints for two dollars. Yes, they are selling it in one and a half pint quantities. Addiction. This is a modern term, you know, in its use relative to drugs and medicines. The term addict will only first be used in 1909. After I am dead, I might add. Oh, I know I was enslaved. But you know, I I didn't know why. I thought I was always ill, and only opium would cure the ill. Withdrawal are those symptoms one experiences when abstaining from a physically addictive drug is a concept that we will not comprehend until the mid-1900s. But of course I should have known better. The very first night that I met my idol, the great poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, in Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure-dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. Yes, that Coleridge, who wrote that marvelous poem probably under the influence of opium. The first time I met him, he spent the whole night urgently trying to persuade me to avoid the perils of opium, to which he had already succumbed. Unfortunately, he rather fascinated me with his description of its horrors into trying it myself. I sampled laudanum my first year in college when I had used it to cure myself a most of a most irritating cold. I soon was taking it before concerts and visits to art museums to enjoy them better, I thought. As I wrote in my little book, opium gives and opium takes away. It took myself nine years of using it before it completely subjugated me. How is it, you may ask, that a, if I may say so, brilliant critic, essayist, bon vivant, living in enlightened England, should become a servant of opium, the scourge of the Far East? Allow me to give you a little history. Opium received its name from the Greek opius, meaning the little juice which is squeezed from the opium poppy. Opium has been helping man, or shall we say, has been part of our civilization for 6,000 years. An ancient Sumerian tablet refers to opium as the joy plant. An Egyptian remedy from 1,500 years before Christ suggests opium to prevent excessive crying of children. I'm sure it did prevent their crying. I'm sure it did. Leave it to the Egyptians to use drugs to sedate and tranquilize their children. How barbaric. We are so much more advanced than that now aren't we? But primarily opium was of use to physicians. It relieved pain. Perhaps more importantly, it stopped a dysentery, that terrible malady whereby you lose all your fluids through unceasing diarrhea. Remember that dysentery has probably killed more people than all of man's battles in war. Homer, in his Odyssey, called opium Nepenthes, that which gives the forgetfulness of evil. That it does, for a short while. The great Dr. Galen, at the beginning of the Christian era, we are told, emphasized caution in the use of opium. But I don't know how so, because he announced among opium's uses that it resists poison and venomous bites, 
cures chronic headache, vertigo, deafness, epilepsy, apoplexy, dimness of sight, loss of voice, asthma, coughs of all kinds, spitting of blood, tightness of breath, colic, urinary troubles, fevers, dropsies, leprosies, the troubles to which women are subject, melancholy, and all pestilences. He could have said, too, that it helps you sleep. But if it actually did cure all these things, rather than just camouflage them, what else is there to treat? Personally, I think he should have found a better word than cure. Perhaps he was mistranslated. Not bad for a little juice. Galen may have suggested caution, but he also mentioned that opium cakes and candles were on sale everywhere in the streets of Greece of his time, about 100 to 200 A.D. Opium poppy, Papaverus somniferum, is an annual flowering plant with lovely large blossoms, white, pink, red, purple, and violet. The little juice is available to be gotten from the budding plant for only seven to ten days, after the petals drop and before the seed pod matures. You nick the pod and collect the sap or gum the next morning. The social, non-medical use of opium probably spread as an unexpected solution to the Muslim Holy Koran's forbidding of alcohol use. Mohammedans could not drink, so they smoked opium and hashish. As you remember, they were a very militant people, and these drugs offered a powerful mental relaxation from the rigors and fears of battle. From the Middle East and India, opium spread to China before 1000 AD. Interestingly, the Chinese emperor was later more concerned with tobacco than opium. He uselessly outlawed tobacco smoking in 1644. Tobacco became scarcer, and people started mixing in more opium and gradually eliminated the tobacco. But the great, great expansion of opium use was really a matter of money, of trade, the British pound, the Portuguese escudo, the Dutch gilder, and, oh, the American dollar, too. It all started with the most uncivilized competition for possession of Asia between the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the English. The Portuguese monopolized the opium trade after establishing themselves in India. In 1557, they were allowed to open Macau for trade, and then Canton on the Chinese coast. But the trade was still, how do you say it? Peanuts. Skip through 200 years of vicious international competition. The Dutch now dominate Southeast Asia, and England now dominates India. We English are so businesslike. The government of India in the early 1800s, my time, was a company. A British corporation granted the exclusive royal license to trade with the Indian continent, the British East India Company. This way, the royal family did not have to soil their hands with business details. This crown company had, of course, a monopoly on opium, which was legal in India. The company could not overtly sell opium to people to consume, untidy, too direct. No, the East India Company auctions chests of opium to private merchants. These merchants then transfer the chests to selected British shipping firms, 
who carry them to the Chinese coast and sell them for a commission to Chinese merchants. Then the Chinese themselves smuggle the opium into their own country. And this way you see the British East India Company can righteously protest and correctly, technically, that it does not smuggle opium into China. But those profits that have made the royal family the wealthiest in the world, quietly, of course, have had to come from somewhere. Those chests of opium mentioned above each held 120 pounds of smokable opium. In 1729, a mere 200 chests entered China that year. But by 1838, 100 years later, 25,000 chests a year were traded to China. What changed? This could not have been an accident. The British opened their first crown company office in Canton, China in 1715. The opium trade was only a trickle. But in 1776, you and our British colonies in North America declare independence, and the ensuing war is very expensive for Great Britain to wage across the wide Atlantic. After the Revolutionary War, Britain is in debt to the tune of 240 million pounds, a huge amount of money, at least in my day. Interest payments for this borrowed money were using up more than half of all government tax revenues. Our Prime Minister, Lord Shelburne, in a flash of inspiration, proposes expanding the opium trade to handle the debt. The main target for this expansion will be China and the floodgates of business enterprise open. You Americans do your part. You garner a monopoly on Turkish opium after 1805, but you never unseat us British. Your two largest shipping companies only manage three to 5,000 chests a year to China in the 1840s and 50s. This is, of course, after American merchants in Canton voluntarily pledge in 1839 to withdraw from the opium trade. Apparently some of you withdraw and others replace you. But how did this happen in China? Opium was destroying the Mandarin class and the entire nation. Opium smoking was prevalent in the Chinese army, in the lower echelons of the civil service, and even among the entourage of the emperor himself. It was because the drug habit cut across all classes that it did so much harm. It lowered the living standards of the poor because it cost so much. And it created corruption and demoralized the more well-to-do classes. How, you may ask, could any government allow this to happen to its citizens? Did not the imperial Chinese family resist the destruction of their ancient, venerable nation? Indeed, they did resist. The emperor himself was finally touched by the evil little juice. His own son died from an opium overdose. The emperor then issued a strong death penalty law against any foreigner who trafficked opium in China, but stated he would be temporarily lenient with those who surrendered their stores of drugs. Nothing changed. Then the emperor found an honest man, Commissioner Lin. Commissioner Lin took in his mind to write a letter to the young Queen Victoria in 1839. He described the Chinese opium crisis in detail. He pressed for an urgent change of British policy. The letter 
is a remarkable piece of correspondence, much less diplomatic correspondence. Allow me to quote from it in part. We find that your foreign ships come hither, striving the one with the other for our trade, and for the simple reason of their strong desire to reap a profit. Now it follows that the immense wealth with which the said foreigners amass ought, properly speaking, to be the portion of our native Chinese people. By what principle, then, should these foreigners send in return a poisonous drug which involves the destruction of those very natives of China, without meaning to say that the foreigners harbor such destructive intentions in their hearts, we yet positively assert that from their inordinate thirst after gain, that they are perfectly careless about the injuries they inflict upon us. And such being the case, we should like to ask, what has become of that conscience which heaven has implanted in the breasts of all men. We have heard, great queen, that in your own country opium is prohibited with the utmost strictness and severity. This is a strong proof that you know full well how hurtful it is to mankind. Since you do not permit it to injure your own country, you ought not to have the injurious drug transferred to another country, and above all others, how much less to the Middle Kingdom, to our China. Let your Highness, immediately upon the receipt of this communication, inform us promptly of the state of matters, and of the measure you are pursuing utterly to put a stop to the opium evil. Please let your reply be speedy. Do not on any account make excuses or procrastinate. I have to admit I am impressed by this letter. I know whereof he speaks. There is no evidence that Queen Victoria read Commissioner Lin's letter. We do not know. So the Emperor sent his Commissioner Lin to Canton, chief trading port of the East India Company, to negotiate directly an end to importing opium. The English merchants, what is the term you use? They stonewalled Lin. He then took matters into his own hands, and in the name of the emperor, seized the entire British stock, which they had overconfidently stored, all in one location, some 20,000 chests, and he burned them. The Chinese emperor thought that facing his millions of foot soldiers, a tiny island nation like England would not dare to brook his ire. But our England had by this time by far the greatest navy in the world, and England declared war. We fought it on the sea, and more importantly, up the Yangtze River to Peking. And two years later, the first opium war was won by England. The English crown received as victorious tribute a 99-year lease to Hong Kong, broad trading rights, and $6 million reparation for the burnt opium. The Chinese fought the English again in 1859, and they lost again. Then they succumb. The great ancient civilization of the Middle Kingdom is overwhelmed by the little juice plant. One wonders what the far consequences, the long-time reaction or sequel to these opium wars will be. How does scripture state it? What ye sow, that sh shall ye reap? 
Following the Opium Wars, the British Crown dissolved the East India Company and thereafter held the opium monopoly directly. Business flourished. Between 1875 and 1885, 82,000 chests of opium a year were shipped to China. 9,840,000 pounds of opium yearly. Opium was the largest single commodity imported into China in the 1800s. By 1906, opium smokers in China number some 13,460,000 out of a population of 400 million, 3.5% of the country. Doesn't sound like much, 3.5%. Perhaps you can understand it better this way. Of adult males in China in 1906, 27% were addicted to opium. One out of four adult Chinese males. But while China languished in misery, our Britain became again a prosperous, affluent trading nation. Not only did the opium trade with China give British merchants direct profits, it also poured money into India where the bulk of opium was produced. This, in turn, was used to pay for the cotton goods Britain manufactured and exported to India. It can be said that without Chinese opium sales, the entire world structure of British trade would have collapsed. Of course, this could not happen in your modern times, that one race would enslave another with drugs, that individual corporations would cause entire nations to fall into the abyss of drug addiction, that the fleet of the international banking system would float on the drug trade. Of course, this could not happen. I would certainly hope not. But the West had other tools than business and war to apply in future to the matter of the little juice. The West had science, and through science it brought continued scientific and medical advances to the poor, natural opium poppy. In 1806 in Hanover, Germany, a pharmacist assistant, Frederick Serturner, isolated the active element in opium, thus at the same time founding a whole new branch of chemistry. He called it morphium, after Morpheus, the god of dreams. Sarah Turner received the French equivalent of the Nobel Prize for this. Later in 1832, a separate opium component was derived, codeine, from the Greek word meaning poppy head. The invention of the syringe in 1853 by Dr. Alexander Wood increased exp exponentially the intensity of the drug's delivery system. It takes minutes for smoked opium to seriously affect the brain, it takes seconds for the syringe into a vein. Which reminds me, I need a little nip of my laudanum to continue to tell this tale. Where were we? Oh yes, morphine. Whereas opium was the Chinese addiction, morphine became in the West what was called the soldier's disease or the army disease. After the brutal and punishing conflicts of your American Civil War, the later Prussian-Austrian War, and then the Franco-Prussian War, wounded soldiers returned to their homes everywhere 
addicted to that even more potent and wonderfully effective painkiller, morphine. Alas, we are still not done with our little story about the little juice. Further improvements on morphine were developed that made it possible for the substance to be absorbed even more rapidly into the fat of the brain. In 1900, the prestigious Bayer Pharmaceutical Company, perhaps you have heard of it, trumpeted a new wonder drug in an official scientific study, and I quote, A sufficiently long period having elapsed since the introduction of this drug, the new substitution for codeine, during which it has been used extensively, we are now enabled to pass judgment upon its real value and to definitely determine in what manner this drug, heroin, has fulfilled the expectation raised in its behalf. End quote. Bare pharmaceutical, no less. And thus into the West, heroin will be launched by means of its inclusion in patent medicines and tonics and medical prescriptions. Oh, what misery, through what corporate and personal greed and thuggery will drugs bring to your coming centuries. Given the double-edged sword of post-mortem foresight, I see that my hard-earned addiction to opium is small juice indeed, compared to what will come. In the early 1900s, heroin is marketed broadly as a wonder drug indeed. Hundreds of thousands of American women alone become addicts, using it to ease their pains after childbirth. Laws are passed, registering drugs on a scale of illegality. But then new drugs are invented. Cocaine is at first a plaything of the rich and intellectuals. The eminent Dr. Sigmund Freud and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle use it. In what probably turned out to be wide public promotion for the drug... Conan Doyle has his Sherlock Holmes using cocaine in several stories. I supposed that its influence is physically a bad one, says Sherlock in The Sign of Four. I find it, however, so transcendingly stimulating and clarifying to the mind that its secondary action is a matter of small moment. Yes, that nasty little secondary action of drugs that comes after it's so desirable, first effects. It is of small moment, says Sherlock Holmes. But he is a fictional character. I am not. I lived a full life in that moment, that secondary action. But, do pardon me, dear listener, I grow too personal. Let us return to the future. A last word about cocaine. As with opium, your business entrepreneur demons, American demons in this case, create new ways to use cocaine. What will you call its smokable form? Crack? How quaint. And look what that will do to your societies. But opium persists and persists. It solves pain and creates worse pain thereafter. So that must be solved. Morphine solved the problem of opium. Codeine solved the greater problem of morphine. Heroin, ha, solves morphine. And then methadone will solve heroin. Solve? Solve? My foresight tells me that each of these drugs are more powerful opiates than the last. 
Methadone will be four times stronger than heroin and thus take four times longer to be cleansed by the body from the system. So it only needs to be used once daily instead of four to six times a day like heroin. But every day it must be used. Oh, and looking far into the future, what is it I see? A grand solution to pain? Oxycontin? A seductively slow-release form of heroin? What will Oxycontin bring to your streets and cities, to your youth? And for what? For profit? For corporate profit? One might call it a new form of international warfare by enforced drug addiction. But isn't that what we British did to the Chinese with our opium wars? Have we learned anything? Will mankind ever learn? We had better. Our civilization will be at stake. Is at stake for you there in the 20th, the 21st centuries. Phew. So dark. But all this comes after my time. Me, I have my laudanum. Opium drops are enough for me. I die before heroin, thank God, and never get into syringes. Uh. Although I write like a madman, 6,000 pages of work in my life, I somehow have never earned enough to survive. My wife, children, and I have been in constant flight from creditors. In my time, you can be arrested and jailed for debts. I have been twice. I even fled to a debt-free sanctuary outside Edinburgh for seven years. Creditors could not pursue me there. And how, and perhaps why, did I not earlier succumb to my thousands of drops of daily laudanum? Why did I not just sleep and sleep, dreaming the dreams of Morpheus? Actually, I found one thing that works for me. One thing. I walk every day, miles and miles and miles, 15 to 20 miles every day. I walk, forcing my system to flush itself clean. Thus, I feel refreshed. If I do not walk, I am overcome. I don't know what it is about walking, but it serves. As long as my legs hold up, I will survive. But like Tantalus climbing his hill, I cannot stop taking my drops. I can not stop. Funny, at one time I thought opium the gate to a new world. How did I put it? Thou hast the keys of paradise, O just, subtle, and mighty opium. I wrote that early on, but later, an opium eater, I wrote, Opium gives, and it takes away. Yes, it takes away. It takes away. Thank you. If you like Thomas de Quincey, Part 1 of Saints and Rascals, please let me know at clarkrncarr at gmail.com clarkrncarr at gmail.com And stay tuned for Saints and Rascals, Part 2, Avicenna. <laughs>